Good morning, everybody. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Dan Eikenson. I'm a director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at the Cato Institute. And uh, thank you for joining us for this discussion today, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Race to the Finish or Long Slog Ahead. Just wanted to say at the outset that this event is being, uh, being live streamed. So, so in addition to the 160 or so people who have registered to attend, there could be up to 7 billion people watching us uh, through, their, through their devices right now. And I also want to mention that uh, if you're interested in live tweeting the event, we encourage it. Um, at, at Cato Trade is where you can send uh, questions to us. And I will select a, one question or two questions uh, that are tweeted to us. Uh, also, if you want to tweet about it and just participate in the debate, which uh, can be archived and seen later. The, uh, the handle is uh, uh, hashtag CatoTPP, hashtag C-A-T-O-T-P-P. Uh, and we can start a really big conversation there and respond to questions uh, during and after the event. I guess, you know, a 21st century agreement <laughs> requires 21st century technology. <clears throat> so uh, if you guys are anything like me, uh, you're probably confused about where things stand in the TPP negotiations. Uh, negotiations have just completed their 19th official round, and there is now talk that an endgame is approaching, or we are approaching the endgame, uh, and that a deal might be had by the end of the year. Uh, however, there are really very many unresolved issues, according to multiple sources, uh, business groups, delegations, negotiators, uh, the media. So it's going to take a while, I think, to uh, get to the bottom of this. Uh, so the question is, is the 2013 completion date uh, realistic? And this is a question that we're asking on the eve of the fourth quarter uh, of the year of 2013. If it's not going to happen this year, uh, when will it happen? When will the TPP countries reach an agreement? Uh, and if they do, what will the US Congress think about it? Uh, there's lots of contradictory information out there coming from the USTR, the White House, Congress, the TPP negotiators, uh, various interest groups, civil society groups. For example, uh, while the USTR is still saying that 2013 is the, the date that the, the agreement will be completed, I don't know if you noticed there was a very tersely worded uh, piece from, uh, signed by a bunch of business groups yesterday uh, that dismissed the alleged progress that has been made. Uh, and in fact, it, it, it sort of chided the USTR and other negotiators to redouble your efforts toward the goal of a comprehensive high standard and commercially meaningful agreement that removes barriers to trade and investment and addresses 21st century challenges in all sectors. Meanwhile, reportedly there are protests going on today. Friends of the Earth is protesting outside the USTR building. Uh, some labor unions are uh, going to be protesting on, on Capitol Hill. So as though they are hoping to forestall the end game. So it's, un it's unclear where, where we stand. There are lots of pending issues. Uh, among the numerous lingering uh, unresolved issues, and this to me is, gets to the heart of this matter, are we talking about a series of bilateral agreements? Or is this one regional agreement? As far as I know, that hasn't been resolved. Uh, and it matters quite a lot. Uh, Many of the countries of the 12 current negotiating countries have bilateral agreements with one another. The U.S. has bilateral agreements with six of the, of the TPP partners. And if we're going to be doing this on an individual bilateral basis, 
uh, it's going to complicate, uh, it's, go it's going to open the door to more protectionism, more exclusions, and it's going to complicate accession to the agreement. Uh, really, if we're going to have a comprehensive agreement, it needs to be regional, and I don't think that that has been worked out yet. Uh, something that certainly should be worked out uh, before we reach the, the end game. State-owned enterprises, uh, seems to be, there seems to be uh, gaps there as to what that's going to, going to entail, um, how far governments are going to be expected to go to discipline their state-owned enterprises, foreign localization barriers, you know, uh, um, policies that give preference to domestic companies, how are we going to rein that kind of discrimination in? I think in terms of Buy American provisions, that seems to me to be a pretty good candidate for a problematic localization barrier. Um, autos, what's going to happen with autos? Are we going to have to wait 25 years for the 25% truck tariff to come down, uh, for the auto tariffs to come down? Tobacco, it's been in the news quite a lot. It's populated the pages, of, editorial pages of the New York Times, the Washington Post. Simon has been commenting quite a bit about the tobacco carve-out, whether it's going to happen or not. It's a very important issue. More broadly, uh, the investor state dispute mechanism. Not all the 12 members negotiating this agreement uh, are on board uh, with the <coughs> provisions. And so what's going to happen there? Intellectual property, uh, special pharmaceutical IP provisions, access to medicines, those issues seem to me to be unresolved. And then there are the other really pressing 21st century issues like textile protectionism. Yarn forward rules of origin, footwear, sugar. You know, the, the, one of the very first acts of the very first Congress in 1790 uh, was to impose duties on imported threads and clothes and hats. And ever since then, we've been protecting this industry. Doesn't strike me as all that 21st century-ish. <clears throat> uh, other issues that are uh, out there are, are uh, well, w w what, is, what is the Congress going to be thinking about this? Uh, is, is, what, what is Congress thinking about T, uh, TPA, for example? Will there be a bicameral, bipartisan bill, as some have talked about? What will be Congress's demands? It's been a long time. You would think that if Congress has the constitutional authority to regulate foreign commerce, that the executive would go a bit sooner before getting to the end game to ask Congress's permission uh, and to, to seek Congress's demands. I don't know how much the communication, how, how open the channels of communication have been, uh, but uh, there are lots of issues out there that can crash this deal and, and, and force the negotiations to be reopened uh, once Congress makes its uh, demands heard. Um, will TPA and trade adjustment assistance be linked? Um, some who support trade adjustment assistance refer to it as funeral expenses, but yet they still support it. Uh, there is a lot of uh, uh, dissent and there's a lot of opposition from Republicans, for sure, to, to attach TAA to TPA. Currency manipulation uh, and misalignment provisions, will those be included? Will Congress insist that that happen? The administration says it doesn't want that uh, to be included in the package. Uh, but uh, you know how difficult the slog has been with respect to currency uh, issues over the past decade. Then there's the May 10th agreement from 2007, uh, where uh, the, there was an insistence from Congress that trade agreements have uh, pretty rigid labor, environmental provisions, provisions concerning access, uh, access to medicines. Is that in play? Is that going to be brought to the fore? So, uh, in my own opinion, and since I'm the moderator and therefore shackled with respect to issuing opinions, uh, the fact that the TBA debate is, is 
has yet to transpire uh, suggests that negotiations are a long way for completion. But the purpose of the panel is to help us get to the bottom of that. So let me, uh, let me discuss the panel real quickly. Um, each speaker is going to speak sequentially for about 10 to 15 minutes. And then after each speaks, we will, we'll do, we'll do Q&A. And we're going to begin with Meredith Kolsky-Lewis, uh, who will give us some background on the agreement and put it into historical context. She's going to discuss the origins of this once pretty humble undertaking with four small countries, the P4, uh, and discuss its evolution to include the, the 12 current countries, talk about other countries that have expressed interest in exceeding, and then envision what it might look like uh, if it were a real trans-Pacific uh, agreement, uh, free trade area of the Pacific. Uh, Meredith is an associate professor and director of the Canada-US Legal Studies Center uh, at the State University of New York Buffalo Law School. She's also a member of the faculty and associate director of the New Zealand Center of International Economic Law at the Victoria University of Wellington Law School. Uh, her research focuses on international economic law with a particular emphasis on regional trade agreements and WTO dispute settlement. Meredith's publications include two co-edited books and one co-authored textbook. Uh, she has also published numerous book chapters uh, and articles in journals, including the Stanford Journal of uh, International Law, the Journal of International Economic Law, uh, and the University of Chicago Journal of International Law. And Meredith has spoken and written extensively about the TPP uh, and has published, and she published the first law review article on the subject in 2009. Uh, she is co-executive vice president and a founding member of the Society of International Economic Law. And prior to entering academia, Meredith practiced law in Washington and Tokyo uh, with the offices of Sherman and Sterling. Uh, then after Meredith, we're going to go straight to, to Simon, uh, Simon Lester, who will focus on some specific high-profile uh, hang-ups uh, that he considers to be evidence that there is a long slog ahead. Uh, Simon is a trade policy analyst with us right here at Cato. Uh, his, his research focuses on WTO disputes, uh, regional trade agreements, disguised protectionism, and the history of international trade law. Uh, Simon is also founder of a very popular um, international trade law website uh, called worldtradelaw.net. Uh, if you haven't seen it before, you should go, go check it out. There's some pretty intense debates uh, going on there about, about the topics, trade law. Uh, before jo joining Cato, Simon worked uh, for the trade law practice of a Washington, D.C. law firm uh, and also as a legal affairs officer uh, at the appellate body secretariat of the WTO. Uh, he has written a number of law journal articles which have appeared in such publications as the Stanford Journal of International Law, the George Washington International Law Review, and the Journal of World Trade. Uh, in addition, he has taught courses on international trade law at American University's Washington College of Law and the University of Michigan Law School, and he has a JD from Harvard Law School, and we're very happy that he's part of our team here at Cato. And then finally, we will move uh, the discussion over to Jason Kearns, who is going to shed some light on congressional thinking about the TPP and the impending and certain-to-be-difficult TPA negotiating process. We're lucky to have Jason here today. Currently, Jason is Chief International Trade Counsel on the Democratic side uh, to the Committee on Ways and Means uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives. In that position, he advises members of Congress on legislation concerning international trade and on oversight issues involving the USTR and other agencies involved in international trade policy and regulation. Before beginning his work with Ways and Means in October of 2006, Jason served for three years in the office of the General Counsel of the USTR uh, within the Executive Office of the President. Uh, in, in that position, he advised negotiators on, on issues that arose during bilateral and multilateral 
uh, trade negotiations and represented the United States in several disputes at the WTO. Uh, from 2000 through 2003, uh, Jason worked in the international trade group of Wilmer Cutler and Pickering, which is now Wilmer Hale. Uh, Mr. Kearns holds a, a master's in public policy from the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, a JD from the University of Pennsylvania, uh, and a Bachelor of Arts from the University of Denver. So. Without further ado, let me uh, welcome Meredith uh, Kolsky-Lewis to the podium, and we shall begin. Great. Thanks very much, Dan, for that introduction, and thanks to Dan and Simon for this invitation to be here today. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. It's great to see such a, um, a large audience. So as Dan indicated, what I'm going to do is try to give a little bit of a historical background on the TPP, how this all got started, um, then comment a little bit on where we are today and where we might go in the future. So if one were to just look at USTR's website, you would think that this agreement, these negotiations were born and the whole idea started around 2010 when the negotiations, as we know them today, began. But actually, the history... Um, goes back a little bit further than that. In 2005, a free trade agreement was formed between countries on the screen, Brunei, Chile, New Zealand, and Singapore, an agreement that sort of colloquially is known as the P4 trade agreement. And if you think about those countries and where they're located, it doesn't intuitively seem obvious why they might have decided to form a free trade agreement. These countries aren't near each other. They don't trade very much with each other. New Zealand and Chile actually have sort of a similar export profile. And in fact, New Zealand and Singapore already had an FTA. So why did they do this? Well, what they wanted to do was create a high standards agreement that could serve as a model for something bigger than the four of them. Talks had been, the idea had been floating around in the Asia Pacific for a long time that an aspiration should be to create a free trade agreement of the Asia Pacific, or FTAP. But while that concept had been floating around since the early 1990s, if not before, there hadn't been any sort of a catalyst or driver to get those negotiations started. So at various times, people thought maybe APEC could be the driver, that perhaps ASEAN could be the driver, that perhaps an FTA between China, Japan, and Korea would be negotiated and that that would be the driver. But none of that had happened. And so these four countries decided to form a free trade agreement that they thought maybe this would be the start. This would at least be a model. And so they negotiated an agreement that, compared to other FTAs, which have a lot of exclusions, was quite high standards um, and, and very clean without carve outs for agriculture and the usual things we see um, left aside. In addition, they put an open accession clause in the agreement, meaning that other countries could negotiate to join um, and, and would be able to join subject to the agreement of the existing members. That's not unheard of in FTAs. There are other FTAs that have open accession provisions, but it's not all that common. So with that in mind, the negotiations were concluded, but the original P4 text did not include a chapter on investment or financial services, and instead provided that two years after the coming into effect of the original agreement, new negotiations would be scheduled to negotiate chapters on those issues. 
When those negotiations were about to commence, the U.S. said, we'd like to sit in on your negotiations and see what you're talking about. And if we like what we see, we'd be interested in joining your agreement. At that point, most of the world paid no attention, but us sitting in New Zealand absolutely went crazy because this was a really big deal. This was huge news because New Zealand had been asking the U.S. for an FTA for many, many years, and the U.S. had always said no. And so this was a very exciting development um, in New Zealand. So one of the reasons I wrote the first Law Review article about this is because only us in New Zealand and maybe Singapore were paying attention uh, at the time that the U.S. decided to sit in on the negotiations. But the U.S. did sit in and decided that it wanted to participate. Now, why would the U.S. want to join that FTA? The U.S. already had an FTA with Singapore. The U.S. already had an FTA with Chile. The U.S. had assiduously rebuffed New Zealand's overtures for an FTA. So it must have been Brunei. <laughs> Darn it, that couldn't be it, right? So there must have been something else that USDRs saw as appealing here. And I think what it was, was spotting the opportunity to get in at the ground level on some agreement that could and hopefully would grow into something much bigger. All of the other previous um, models or ideas for an FTAP catalyst all included China. None of them included the US. So the US was looking at all of these ideas out there and would have been on, as James Baker once said, on the wrong side of a divided Pacific. So here was the opportunity to get in and actually help establish the terms for an agreement that I think that the rationale was not Brunei, but was to grow this agreement into something that would be much larger, and if not comprehensively covering the Asia-Pacific, would be a substantial portion of the Asia-Pacific. Okay. So once the U.S. said it wanted to join in 2008, that also didn't get very much news because, of course, we were in the midst of an election. And once the Obama administration came in, it was unclear whether the new administration would um, follow in the footsteps of the Bush administration, which was the administration that had indicated interest. So it took a period of time for the new administration to review trade policy and decide, yes, indeed, actually, it did also want to um, pursue uh, exceeding. At that point, Australia, Peru, Vietnam all said, us too, us too. And very shortly thereafter, Malaysia also said they wanted to participate. It was pretty soon after the U.S. expressed interest that it became clear that, in fact, these new countries were not going to accede to the P4 via the open accession provision, but that instead a brand new agreement was going to be negotiated. However, it's a bit misleading to think that the TPP just grew out of some idea in 2009 or 2010. And I think it's relevant to in evaluating where it's going and what its objectives are to think back on what the objectives were of the original P4 agreement. So those nine countries started then Canada and Mexico joined in late 2012, about a year ago. <clears throat> and then two months ago, Japan joined the negotiations. And Japan joining the negotiations is, from the perspective of 
the goal of creating an FTAP or something along those lines, Japan joining is really a game changer and a very, very significant development. Because if all the US gets out of this is a partnership of a bunch of countries it already has FTAs with, and great Brunei and New Zealand, and even Malaysia and Vietnam, that's not really such a success. What you need is some bigger economies in there. So getting Japan in the third largest economy in the world is a very significant development. I think that will make it more likely that Korea will ultimately join. I think Korea's main priority right now is negotiating a bilateral FTA with China, but that's not to say that it won't join the TPP down the track. So other people will talk about the 21st century high standards agreement aspect of this. I won't say too much about that, but we do know that the content of the TPP is certainly quite a lot broader than the WTO. There are a lot of chapters that don't appear in the WTO. Stan mentioned state-owned enterprises. There's going to be a labor chapter, an environment chapter, more stringent intellectual property rules. And the negotiations, by all accounts, although not much is said, it seems that they have been rather difficult. The U.S. has, as I understand it, played the role of demandeur and has received a lot of pushback, perhaps to the negotiator's initial surprise. But from the standpoint of, for example, New Zealand, New Zealand's very concerned about agreeing to intellectual property provisions that go beyond trips, it has significant implications for the public health system and the cost of medicines. And so New Zealand wants to know, well, what are we going to get in exchange? And New Zealand wants to have access for its dairy products. Meanwhile, the U.S. dairy industry is kicking up a big fuss, saying you've got to exclude dairy. And this is replicated with many of the participants and many of the issues they care about. So the negotiations, it seems, have been a bit difficult. Um, on the issue of modalities that, that Dan alluded to, this is a very important but obviously very difficult issue. If you negotiate bilaterally with everyone, then you can avoid reopening balances that were struck in FTAs. So the U.S. would not have to give Australia sugar access, for example, when the U.S.-Australia FTA excludes sugar. But if you have a single tariff schedule, then unless sugar is excluded from the entire TPP, you would have to provide some sugar access, and then Australia is getting something that they didn't get through the FTA. But what I have heard about this, and I have to say my information is probably not very good, is that while the U.S.'s initial position was we're going to negotiate bilaterally, my understanding is that it is agreed now that at the end there will be a single schedule. Now, how we get to that schedule and what's in it, I, I don't know. So the goal, as Dan said, to conclude this year seems... I think also unlikely and highly optimistic. It seems there are a number of difficult issues that remain to be resolved, and they probably are not going to be resolved until the negotiators feel some pressure that they're running out of time, that there's an end game, there's a deadline, and you have to resolve it by this time. And my own view is that what will trigger that end game will be the seeking, and if they receive it, the receiving of trade promotion authority, which right now the U.S. does not have. So the U.S. is just off negotiating. Congress has given no authority. Um, 
But if the U.S. seeks trade promotion authority and receives it, and that TPA comes with a deadline, that will impose some pressure on the negotiators. And I just think that they have not reached that endgame stage yet where they're making the difficult decisions. So when will that happen? Well, the USTR has said they're going to seek TPA soon. But I, I don't know what soon is. Maybe we'll, we'll hear about what that might be. Okay. So is the TPP going to grow into an FTAP? Certainly an APEC-wide agreement, which is what was initially contemplated when this idea first arose in the early 90s, that is certainly a very long, long ways off. An agreement that would be comprehensive, including Russia and India, doesn't seem particularly realistic in the short or the medium term. But it certainly could become an agreement of more of major significance. Many countries have indicated a desire to join and have been told we want to keep the initial negotiations to the group of countries it is now, but once the agreement has been entered into, it will also have an open accession provision and you can negotiate to join at that time. So that's included the Philippines, Thailand, um, Taiwan, and a number of other countries have expressed interest. Now with Japan in, this becomes a lot more interesting because now we have something like 40% of world trade is covered by this agreement. Um, and with Japan in, as I said, I think it makes it more likely that Korea will come in. Now, what about China? China's reaction to this agreement when it sort of went on, appeared on their radar screen in, in late 2010 was, this is all designed to exclude us. This is the anti-China agreement. And that caused quite a bit of consternation. Now that said, recently, China has made some statements, which may mean nothing, but which may mean something, where Ministry of Commerce officials have said, we are studying the TPP and we may decide to join in the future. It's quite a turnaround from the rhetoric that was coming out of China a couple of years ago. In the meantime, however, China is pursuing its own mega FTA in the Asia Pacific region called the RCEP, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. One of the models that had been bandied about in the past that could serve as a catalyst or starting point for an FTAP was something called ASEAN plus six, or ASEAN plus the countries listed here, Australia, China, India, Japan, Korea, and New Zealand. That negotiation never got started, but once the TPP started um, gathering steam in the last couple of years, China pushed harder to get the, the, those negotiations started. And tellingly, they are no longer called ASEAN plus six, even though the countries negotiating the RCEP are the ASEAN plus six countries, exactly. They aren't calling it ASEAN plus six. They're calling it RCEP, which would suggest to me that the driver of those negotiations is not ASEAN. However, that agreement has, although it has a number of members in common with the TPP, there's a lot of overlap, it's a different kettle of fish. We're talking about a much lower level of ambition. We're talking about negotiations that are going to move more slowly. There's going to be much more push for exemptions. And I think that that agreement will end up being much more like a traditional FTA. It will more closely mirror the WTO agreements and content, 
and we'll have long phase-outs and carve-outs. India is not going to agree to the kind of terms that are being contemplated in the TPP. So what does the future hold? Well, I think that the TPP has, more, has better prospects to expand further than does the RCEP. I think the RCEP will be those 16 countries, and that's it, whereas a lot of countries are lining up to join the TPP. And because the TPP is going to grow, because it covers so much of world trade, and because it covers areas that are not currently a part of the WTO, I think that it may serve as um, a source of future agenda items in the multilateral trading negotiations. So once countries agree to much broader um, services protections, once we have agreement on state-owned enterprises, we may see those issues show up on future WTO agendas. But first, the agreement has to be concluded, which is a big if. Thank you. Thank you. Let's go. Uh, my name is Simon Lester. Uh, happy to be talking to everybody today about the TPP. Uh, Meredith started out with a, a big picture look at the origins and the foundation of the TPP in some broader context. I'm going to go in the other direction and dive straight into two very narrow and specific TPP issues that have been in the news a lot recently. At the end, though, I'll come back and I'll, I'll tie these points to the theme of the day, which is the prospects for the TPP. My emphasis is going to be on the U.S. policy debate, um, but these issues are being talked about in other TPP countries as well. Uh, so I think the points that I raise here will also have a more general relevance globally uh, for those of you from somewhere else. The first issue I want to touch on is more about the procedure of negotiating trade agreements than the substance. One of the criticisms of the TPP that I've been hearing a lot recently is that it's too secretive. Um, governments are negotiating behind closed doors. We, the public, and even some members of Congress, uh, apparently, don't have access to all of the proposals and to the draft legal texts, whereas corporate lobbyists apparently do have access. And the secretive approach doesn't allow for a, a proper debate of the important policy issues involved. Uh, some criticism has come from a, a number of groups. One is uh, Global Trade Watch, uh, who had a, an opinion piece in The New York Times recently called o Obama's Covert Trade Deal where they say the secrecy of the TPP process represents a huge assault on the principles and practice of democratic governance. These criticisms have also come from members of Congress, such as Senator Elizabeth Warren, who voted against uh, the confirmation of current U.S. Trade Representative Mike Froman on, the base, on this same basis, that he wouldn't release the draft legal text. And she said the American people have the right to know more about these negotiations. So what, what to make up all this? Uh, should, should trade talks be more transparent? Well, I agree that it would be nice if there were more openness. Uh, for one thing, it would give me more to write about and make my job easier, so that would be nice. But beyond self-interest, as a general matter, I think governments should, be, uh, should tell people what they're doing and why and, and try to convince them that, that what the policies they're promoting are, are the correct ones. And we shouldn't be afraid of this kind of discussion. Why is free trade good? Well, I'm happy to tell you why it's good, and, and I think uh, the U.S. government should, too. Government shouldn't avoid these kinds of debates. But I'm skeptical of the specific claims here. I, I think they're a bit exaggerated for a number of reasons. 
First off, uh, if you compare the TPP to congressional legislation, uh, to me, the TPP seems less secretive than uh, a lot of what goes on in Congress. No offense to my friend Jason over here. Um, sometimes things are transparent there, but sometimes they're not. I spend most of my time researching international trade agreements, but on occasions when I'm looking into uh, congressional legislation, I'm often left wondering, where did this provision come from? What were they trying to do? What does this mean? It often seems as though years later we discover something in a piece of legislation that um, you know, we didn't anticipate or, or weren't aware of. By contrast, we know a lot about the TPP. I'm going to assign somewhat of an arbitrary number here, and I'd say we know 95% of what's in it. It's mostly like previous trade agreements. and Many of the draft <laughs> chapters have been leaked. If you want to know what's in it, I would say go read Inside U.S. Trade. They have everything on there. So I think trade agreements do relatively okay with transparency. Now, with regard to the other 5%, negotiators need to keep some things secret. Um, when you're negotiating an international agreement, governments just don't want to give away all of their objectives. Now, in an ideal Cato world, we would just be liberalizing trade on our own. There would no, be, be no need for negotiations and no need for secrecy. But unfortunately, we live in the real world where governments pursue a wide range of objectives in trade agreements, some related to trade liberalization, some related to other things, and they don't want to let on what matters to them most. And that's a big part of why they keep things secret. And as a final point here, I'm not sure secrecy is the real issue. I think if the agreement said something that the critics liked, if it secretly said something the critics liked, I don't think they'd be objecting. The real problem here is the substance. And it seems to me that this focus on secrecy is a bit of a cop-out. I suspect that a lot of the people who are complaining about secrecy are just wary of talking about the substance. It's complicated. It can be hard to explain. Let's face it, sometimes it's a little boring. People lose interest. And it can be controversial. Uh, people might be uh, afraid of offending someone like a potential campaign donor. So instead, they focus on the hot issue of the day, which is secret government activities. So I don't think secrecy is the main concern. And to critics like Senator Warren, I would say, let's hear what you think of some of the many issues that we, we know will be in the TPP. So just recently, Senator Warren spoke to the AFL-CIO, and she repeated these secrecy charges. And she made some vague allegations about trade agreements. She said, trade agreement time for corporations is like Christmas morning. They get special gifts they can never pass through Congress. Um, and she says, from what I hear, Wall Street, pharmaceuticals, telecom, big polluters, and outsourcers are all trying to rig the, the upcoming trade deal in their favor. So what I take from that, first of all, is that maybe the TPP is not all that secret, because she can identify a lot of the villains out there. Um, <laughs> But there also needs to be more substance here. At some point, we need to get specific. So let me take financial services, which Senator Warren, I know, spends a lot of time on. And she mentioned Wall Street in, in her remarks there. Here's one issue about financial services. Should there be trade rules that prohibit discrimination against foreign providers of financial services? Well, some critics seem to say no to any non-discrimination rules. But I can't figure out why. How does protectionism help here? I don't see how it does, and it's, it's not clear to me what Senator Warren's concerns would be on that issue. So, so I say let's debate issues uh, like this one and others and not hide behind the rhetoric of secrecy. Okay, having put out a challenge to everybody to talk about substance, let me now talk about substance. And, uh, there are a lot of possible issues out there. Um, we talked about state-owned enterprises, currency manipulation. I'm going to pick one that's sure to be controversial, tobacco. Anything related to tobacco is controversial, and this is no exception. The basic issue is this. Should there be a carve-out of tobacco from TPP rules? Let me explain this issue. As some of you may have heard already, um, recently there's been some public controversy over the treatment of tobacco in the TPP. 
Uh, New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg recently had a, uh, an opinion piece in The New York Times saying, why is Obama caving on tobacco? And in his telling, a previous draft of the agreement had a safe harbor provision that would make sure that governments could regulate tobacco. But now the Obama administration has bowed to pressure from the tobacco industry and gotten rid of this provision. Uh, the New York Times itself, the editorial board, also had, had a piece uh, called The Hazard of Free Trade Tobacco, where they argue that tobacco ought to be excluded from these trade rules. Um, they say reducing trade barriers to tobacco would increase tobacco consumption, lead to additional deaths. Now, this all seems kind of odd, probably, that the, the Obama administration is being accused of going soft on tobacco. I mean, in the, early in the first term, they pushed hard for domestic regulation of tobacco. Um, would they really be caving into the tobacco, the corporate tobacco lobby now? Let's look at the facts of what's going on here. Well, in terms of the, the trade technicalities, the basic story is the following. Anti-tobacco groups have long been calling for a carve-out of tobacco uh, from trade agreements. And last year, USTR seemed willing to, to push for a mildly strong proposal in this regard. So what I have up here is, is uh, USTR's description of it, not the actual test, text. Um, I haven't seen the actual, actual text. There's that secrecy issue I was talking about earlier. Um, so the quote here is just USTR's description of it. My understanding of what it would do, the key aspect is that it would make it easier uh, to satisfy the exceptions of trade agreements. So for you trade wonks out, wonks out there, it would be something less than a necessity test. So it's easier to satisfy the exceptions. But it would not have been a complete carve out of tobacco from trade rules. For one thing, it only applied to regulation, not legislation. And I'm still a little fuzzy on this, but it wouldn't apply to all of the investment rules, maybe to some, but not to others. So it, it would not be a complete carve out, but it might make trade challenges to, uh, to tobacco regulation more difficult. Last month, USTR abandoned this approach and they came up with a new proposal uh, where instead of having easier to satisfy exceptions, they would just have a provision clarifying that um, the general exceptions already in trade agreements apply to tobacco health measures, which everyone kind of already knew, but they would just specify it. Um, it would also have a, an additional uh, consultation mechanism when a tobacco measure is at issue. And it clarified that we would continue to, pre pro to promote, um, to press for the elimination of tariffs. So the reaction to this proposal has been very negative. And that's what I was quoting uh, uh, earlier with Mayor Bloomberg in the New York Times. Mayor Bloomberg hates it. The New York Times hates it. Anti-tobacco groups hate it. They're all upset about it. But in addition to that, business groups don't like it either. Even this weak proposal is too much for them. They don't want to single out tobacco. Uh, they think it's a slippery slope. If we start excluding tobacco, what other products are going to be next? So, so they're not happy with it either. Um, it, basically, it seems impossible to make the two sides happy. One side wants much more. The other side wants much less. Well, how do you, how do you resolve that? And then to complicate things further, Malaysia has come out and said, well, we'd like a complete carve-out, actually. Still a little unclear to me what they mean by that, a carve-out from everything, including the investment rules, including from tariffs. I'm not absolutely sure about that, but they want a much stronger carve-out. Okay, so in response to the negotiating mess on this issue, here's the substantive question I think we should be asking. So do, do we need a carve-out for tobacco, partial or, or full? Do we need any kind of carve out? And I have a slightly different take on this, I think, than either the New York Times and that side or the business groups on the other side. I have a different framework for thinking about it. The question I would ask is, a carve out from what? Are you talking about a carve out from rules that limit protectionism, like eliminating tariffs? Or are you talking about a carve out from some of the broader trade rules that deal with domestic policy issues? And I think you have to address these two issues separately. There are different implications from, from each one. Let me start with the protectionism issue. 
It's never been clear to me why people want to carve out tobacco from anti-protectionism rules like eliminating tariffs or the national treatment rule. Why would you want to create a domestic monopoly or oligopoly uh, to keep out foreign competitors? I'm not sure how that, help, that helps uh, with public health regulation. If you want to discourage smoking by raising the price of cigarettes, well, there's no need for a tariff. Just tax the product with a non-discriminatory tax that applies to, to all products. This is perfectly legal under trade rules. Uh, there's no need for a carve out here that I can see, that I can see. You just get rid of all the tariffs. And yes, if you want to raise the, the price of cigarettes, you, you can tax all cigarettes. So that issue to me, I think is pretty easy. A little harder is one about a carve out from other TPP rules, other trade rules that aren't about protectionism. Some examples are uh, intellectual property protections that deal with patents, copyrights, and particular, to, to particular interest to tobacco is trademarks. And then certain aspects of the rules on foreign investment that protect foreign companies by allowing them to sue governments before an international tribunal. As for applying a carve out to these rules, I think that critics may be missing the bigger picture here. Their underlying argument is that these rules interfere with national autonomy uh, by getting in the way of legitimate domestic regulations. Um, but this is a problem that applies beyond tobacco. It applies to all domestic policy. So, an argument that these rules are only a problem for tobacco, and therefore we need a, a carve-out for tobacco, is a strange one, I think. In a sense, it's an argument that it's fine for international trade law to interfere with non-tobacco-related public health re regulation, but we can't have it interfere with tobacco-related public health regulation. So I say no carve-out here either. If you want to reform the, the trade rules in question, that's fine, and I think that's where the focus should be, and I think this is a great opportunity to, to talk about those rules. But I don't think tobacco is as unique as some people suggest. And I think coming up with special rules for it is more of a distraction than a solution. So let me, let me sum this up and bring it all back to the big picture of the TPP's prospects. I think it's clear that there's a big, messy debate going on here with the tobacco issue. And I, I look at this as perhaps a, a microcosm of the overall TPP debate. This seems like one of many issues that could get in the way of a completed deal, certainly by the end of the year, which seems wildly unrealistic. But even, even in the future, I think it's going to be very difficult. Uh, you know, we, we've already mentioned others like the investment rules, the intellectual property rules, state-owned enterprises. Currency manipulation is going to be extremely difficult, I think. Um, can the TPP countries really work all this out? And if so, is Congress going to si sign off on it? I, I have serious doubts about all of it. And to bring up secrecy again, well, I'm skeptical of the secrecy allegations. I can see how they would have some traction in the current environment. Uh, I see why the, the people who are talking about secrecy are, are talking about it. As much as I dismiss it, yeah, it, it might play well to a general audience. So, so for me, the answer to the question in the title of the event, and I think you know, Dan gave away my, my conclusion here, it's a long slog at best. Um, I don't want to con condemn the TPP as the next Doha round yet. The Doha round is the, the round of WTO negotiations started in 2001. It's been going on for over a decade, and it's not looking good. Um, but I think government officials should be wary of putting forth these promised end dates that are constantly missed. If they do, I think the TPP starts to look a little bit more like Doha, and that's probably not a good sign. Thank you. Thank you, Dan, for having me. Um, <clears throat> I'll try to keep my comments sort of as short as I can so that we can focus more on, on questions and answers. 
Um, first, uh, give you a little bit better understanding of the role I play. My, my boss is, um, my main boss, I have a lot of bosses, I think. Um, my main boss is uh, Sander Levin from Michigan. He's the ranking member on uh, the Committee with Jurisdiction over Trade Agreements, uh, Ways and Means. Um, he, um, he tends to be, um, uh, well, there's a number of members of Congress who uh, probably have a pretty clear record of voting for just about every trade agreement and others who have a record um, of voting against just about every trade agreement. My boss is a little bit different. Um, he, uh, I'm not sure exactly what his voting record is. The most recent three FTAs um, with uh, Colombia, Panama, and Korea, he voted for two out of three. He didn't vote for Colombia. Um, <clears throat> voted for China PNTR, um, voted for Russia PNTR. Um, uh, so he, he takes a little bit more of a nuanced approach, in, in my view, to a lot of these issues. And so a lot of times, you know, the specifics of the agreement matter a lot to him and determine um, how he's going to vote. Um, <clears throat> before getting into TPP specifically, I thought it might be worthwhile to um, give you sort of an overview of some of the objectives we try to achieve, um, regardless of what the issue is on the trade uh, agenda. I think that basically there are three objectives that we are particularly concerned about at this juncture. Um, one is addressing global trade imbalances and ensuring greater reciprocity. Two is spreading the benefits of trade more broadly uh, instead of contributing to growing economic inequality, which unfortunately I think there's um, pretty good evidence that, that trade has had that impact in the United States and in other countries. And then three is reasserting our market base. This may be something that appeals more to um, uh, the Cato Institute than maybe my first two points, but uh, reasserting our market-based economic model uh, versus what we see uh, as um, a, an emerging trend towards state capitalism. Um, and more broadly speaking, making sure the U.S. retains its engagement and assertive leadership in the global economy. Um, <clears throat> so getting into TPP, um, I would start by saying we certainly see this as uh, a rare opportunity to achieve the three objectives I laid out and, and many others, and, and ultimately to strengthen the U.S. economy, strengthen the global economy. Um, you know, we've as um, you know, as already has been mentioned, the the agreement I think covers um, about 40% of GDP, uh, about a third of world trade. Um, you know, there's a, a number of different issues out there, even where we, with countries um, with which we have agreements, U.S. dairy producers, for example, are looking to get into the Canadian um, market. Canada still has tariffs of 250 to 300% on dairy products. Um, Malaysia has tariffs on autos of 35%. Um, there are credit card uh, barriers for our companies as well. So in a broad, broad area, uh, um, broad range of issues, we, we have some real um, ability to, to gain further market access, and we're, we're very interested in that. I would also point out that um, we see this as an opportunity to help shape global trade rules going forward, you know, going beyond uh, TPP. This is a point that I think the administration um, and EU officials have made in the context of the trans-Atlantic um, Trade and Investment Partnership, but I think it also applies um, when we're talking about this so-called 21st century TPP agreement. Um, so we see this not just as a way of sort of shaping our, our trading relationship with the parties to TPP, but ultimately one day 
helping to influence you know, the global trading system as well. Um, we also see it as an opportunity to um, make progress, even with some of the agreements we already have in place. So for example, my boss, going back to NAFTA, was very concerned that the agreement didn't include labor and environmental obligations. Um, and um, as Dan mentioned on, on May 10th, the, the May 10th agreement, we, we expect that um, there will be uh, very strong enforceable obligations on those issues in the agreement. And that, when you think about it, would essentially be doing what Obama had said at the beginning of his term. He talked about wanting to renegotiate NAFTA and everybody um, thought he was crazy and, and that this would um, a sign that he is a protectionist and that we're not going to go anywhere on the trade agenda. You know, at the end of the day, you know, I think the, the issue that was front and center on the NAFTA debate was including labor and environmental um, obligations. And we now are looking at an opportunity to do that with Canada and Mexico. Um, so that's, that's something that we're interested in as well. Similarly, in the case of Vietnam, a lot of, um, a lot of people question whether we should be negotiating a trade agreement with a country that has a pretty poor record on labor rights, human rights. I think from our perspective, again, we see this as an opportunity to um, make progress on that issue where we, we wouldn't otherwise you know, have that opportunity. And so we're, we're interested in that as well. Um, focusing on a few of the, um, of the outstanding issues that we are um, quite interested in, um, uh, I think Simon emphasized quite a bit currency manipulation as an issue. And I would certainly um, uh, like to say more about that. And again, being at the Cato Institute, I was thinking about this this morning, remembering, I can't remember which Bush administration official had said this. I want to say it was Lawrence Lindsay who was talking about really in the context more of China than um, TPP at that time, or even P4, um, was talking about how trade flows are really determined by communist governments at this point, in, in many cases, um, you know, not by the market. And, um, and that's why I think this is an issue that really should unite uh, many of us in Congress and has united many of us in Congress. Um, so for example, early in the summer, the House um, sent a letter to the administration talking about the need to include strong and enforceable currency obligations in TPP. Um, that letter was signed by oh, uh, 230 or maybe it was slightly over 230 members of Congress. There's 435 of us, so that's a clear majority of, um, of members of Congress. Um, and my understanding is the Senate is working on a similar letter. I understand it also has um, most members on board former USTR Ambassador um, Portman, now Senator Portman, um, agreed to sign the letter and gave a pretty strong, uh, some pretty strong remarks last week on the need to address this in TPP uh, last week. Um, so there is very serious interest in doing this in Congress. Um, and I would also point to a paper um, done by um, uh, Fred Bergsten and Joe Gagnon at the Peterson Institute for International Economics at the end of last year, they estimate that currency manipulation from, I think they identify about 20 countries, um, is responsible for about one half of excess unemployment in the United States. So I think everyone should give that a little bit more thought. There's a lot of focus on, you know, do we need additional fiscal stimulus? Do we need additional monetary stimulus? Can we even have additional monetary stimulus beyond what we're doing with quantitative easing? Those are interesting questions, but one half of excess unemployment 
caused by currency manipulation. And what are we doing about it? What have we done about this over the past 10 years when it really has been a critical issue? And of course, some people have pointed out, Sebastian Malaby comes to mind, that um, given the effect that this has had on U.S. interest rates, some believe that this actually helped to contribute to the U.S. Or to the global financial crisis. Something that I think needs to be addressed. And so then the question is, well, how would you go about doing that? Um, I actually think the the technicalities here are relatively easy to do. Um, I, I, I fully recognize that getting countries, including countries that some people have identified as currency manipulators in the past to agree to do something might not be so easy. Um, but what do we do is, I think, relatively simple. That the, um, the IMF has already developed guidelines on what constitutes currency manipulation. Of course, currency manipulation um, is illegal under the IMF um, Articles of Agreement going back to, you know, uh, right after World War II. But in 2007 in particular, um, the IMF got, uh, developed guidelines that made pretty clear what currency ma manipulation is. So, for example, uh, you know, if a country is engaging in protracted large-scale intervention in the currency markets, that's obviously um, something to be taken into account. If it has large global trade surpluses, something to be taken into account. If it's accumulated through its interventions, um, uh, a great deal of foreign exchange reserves, that's something to be taken into account. Um, so the problem, though, of course, is the IMF doesn't have an enforcement mechanism. Um, it's a sort of a consensus-based organization. Well, if we just take those IMF guidelines that are already pretty clear, maybe build upon them, clarify them in some respects, but essentially take what we have there and insert that into TPP that has already, of course, a dispute settlement mechanism worked into it, that seems to us to be a pretty um, good way to address the issue. Now, a lot of um, people have said, well, gosh, yeah, a, lot of, you know, a lot of countries don't like what the United States is doing in terms of quantitative easing, loose monetary policy. Um, so won't we be the first victims of, of a currency provision? Um, I mean, to me, this is a total red herring. Um, because if you look, again, at what the IMF guidelines say, IMF being, you know, again, consensus-based organization, the parties to the IMF being pretty much the entire world, um, we've, we've identified what that is. Protracted large-scale intervention in the currency markets, not the United States. We don't intervene in the currency markets essentially at all. Excessive foreign exchange reserves, not even close. Um, we have almost no foreign exchange reserves. Uh, large trade surplus, if only we had a large trade surplus. Um, uh, so I don't see any concerns over that, and, um, and, and I think it would, be, it would be good for us to you know, proceed with a, with a currency proposal um, as soon as possible. Um, since I had promised to keep my remarks short, I guess I'll try to speed up this a little bit. But a few of the other critical issues for us, um, again, given that we think one of our key objectives needs to be uh, reasserting our sort of U.S. market-based economic model, um, you know, we need to find a way to address state-owned enterprises um, in, in the TPP agreement. Um, we need to be able to allow our um, companies to compete on a level playing field vis-a-vis -vis companies that have backing from, from foreign governments. Um, a, a real critical issue for my boss, again, I mentioned he's from Michigan, but I don't think this is really why he's so focused on the issue, is what Japan's participation in TPP means, um, and in particular on the issue of uh, automotive market access. So, you know, how, what do I mean when I say it's not just that my boss is um, from Michigan? Um, yeah, I think it's important to 
to focus on the fact that two-thirds of our deficit with Japan uh, is in the automotive market, and our deficit with Japan is second only to our deficit with China uh, in terms of the largest deficits we have in the world. So this is clearly an issue not just for um, you know, parochial interests in the United States. It really is uh, a, US, um, a U.S. interest, I think. The market in Japan has always been closed. Um, it is and from a variety of measures that have been put in place over the years um, that are you know, clearly designed to keep, to keep um, foreign automobiles out of the market. The market share um, of imports in Japan is about 6%. That's the lowest of any OECD country. And a lot of people tell me, well, you know, they just don't like American cars. No, I'm talking about all imports from all countries. So, you know, when I hear people say, well, you know, the United States doesn't make the right kind of car or the United States isn't competitive, is that true of Korea? Um, you know, right next door to Japan, they're not buying Korean cars either. In fact, I understand Hyundai uh, recently invested in Japan and then I think more recently had to pull out of the market because it couldn't, it couldn't, um, it couldn't make it viable. Um, <clears throat> again, this is not an issue that's new. We've been struggling with this issue going back at least to the 1980s, and a number of agreements have been reached with the Japanese to address it. None of those agreements have worked. Why is this going to be different? Um, we hope it will be. We have some ideas on how to make this agreement different. Um, I think it's going to require a lot more thinking outside of the box, and we're going to need to avoid, avoid some of the conventional wisdom about how to do some of these things. So, for example, my boss has proposed that um, we not reduce the U.S. tariffs on autos and trucks until we actually see that the Japanese market is open. Um, now, obviously, that's a little bit different than an approach we normally take in trade agreements, where we, you ask, what's the measure that is limiting your market access? <clears throat> but in the case of Japan, given the long history, given what we see as sort of um, a whack-a-mole scenario that we've had over the years, we think we need to have some sort of benchmark like that in order to determine whether or not the Japanese market truly is open. Um, one thing that's interesting, I think, about my boss's proposal is um, it would actually lead to removing U.S. tariffs sooner than what the U.S. and Japan have been talking about um, if the Japanese market opens sooner and gets closer to the OECD levels um, in terms of import penetration. Um, so um, that's, that's just one example of the things we're going to want to see, I think, with Japan um, we're just going to need some greater certainty that, you know, and, and some recognition that what we've tried in the past hasn't worked, and we're going to need a new approach um, to opening up that market. Um, obviously, uh, I think Dan referred to the May 10th issues, the, the three most important of which are labor, environment, and access to medicines. Um, and I mentioned as well that I think we're, you know, that's sort of a starting point for us. We certainly want to see um, those those rules included in, in a final agreement. And, um, you know, if anyone doubts how serious we are about that, I'd be happy to point them to, um, you know, the, the history over the past 10 years where we opposed the last trade promotion authority agreement, um, largely due to concerns over um, what the negotiating objectives said on these issues. Um, and then also opposed a number of the FTAs that came up um, after that agreement was, um, after the TPA was put in place and before we had the May 10th breakthrough. So those issues are very important to us. Um, <clears throat> getting to the issue of timing a little bit, I guess I might be um, 
um, maybe a little bit more optimistic that an agreement could actually be reached sooner. Um, I mean, I was, I, I was, the way I look at it is I think we actually really are in sort of end game scenario in terms of the fact that I think a lot of the um, underbrush uh, has been cleared. We've really gotten down to the issues where that really matter. And I think that the negotiators at a point where they're thinking creatively about um, what kind of trade-offs need to be made. That to me sounds like end game. Now, how long does that end game last? I don't know. Maybe it's, uh, maybe it's not, maybe it's longer than the end of this year. And what do we mean by concluding the agreement at the end of the year? I mean, I suppose I would probably agree that, you know, I don't know that we're going to have a legally scrubbed I's dotted and T's crossed agreement by the end of the year. Um, but it's conceivable to me that we could actually, um, you know, have these big issues worked out by that point. Um, but as, as Dan mentioned, it, what one of the question marks in my mind is, you know, it, it isn't so much on, you know, what are you going to do on SOEs? What are you going to do on currency? As, as huge as those issues are. And of course, the United States has not even tabled text yet on currency. So um, I don't mean to be defeating my own argument too much here, <laughs> but um, uh, there is definitely something to that. But, it, you know, as, as Dan mentioned, there are some some sort of structural issues, I think, that still need to be worked out. Um, you know, I, um, if we are going to have different duty phase out, different duty rates for different countries, then, for example, what does that mean in terms of the rules of origin within the TPP? Um, I think there's a lot of issues like that that still need to be resolved that are, that are really pretty fundamental. Um, but, you know, again, I think that they, they, they can get there. So uh, that's TPP. Uh, TPA... Um, a few quick thoughts on that. Um, first, I got to just say, you know, I, I hear everybody say, you know, well, gosh, when is the administration going to ask for it? And what does it mean? They say, you know, they're going to ask for it soon. I mean, from what I've seen, the president has asked for it. The president has said he wants this. Um, you know, some people, I think, want him to do some kind of dance or something while he's saying it, or um, they don't like quite the way he says it or um, who he says it to. I don't know. Um, but I think the administration's made pretty clear that they want TPA. And um, we have been in discussions with our counterparts, um, uh, Senate Finance Committee chairs and ranking members with Ways and Means chair and ranking members um, to try to resolve some of these issues and move forward with the TPA bill. Um, I don't know how that process is going to play out. Um, from my perspective, I think we've, um, we're looking for... Um, a pretty different TPA bill than we've had in the past. Um, so the two things that come to mind, uh, Simon focused a lot on this issue of secrecy, um, transparency. What I would say on that is, I mean, in my view, there is a great deal of misinformation out there um, about the process. Um, and, but there is also, I think that there are some real legitimate issues being raised and real legitimate concerns that we share. We think the process can be strengthened we think that, um, that we can put in place mechanisms that ensure that the administration will consult with Congress meaningfully that are lacking in the 2002 bill. Again, when I mentioned the, the, the 2002 debate over TPA, um, you know, we had concerns over these negotiating objectives on the May 10th issues. The other issue we flagged was the need for stronger consultation mechanisms in TPA. We felt that way then, but given... As Simon pointed out, 
the way this debate is shaping up, I don't think there's any question that we are very much in the majority in terms of wanting a stronger role for Congress in the process, certainly. I mean, one thing, I mean, I agree with Simon that I don't think our negotiators can negotiate publicly. Obviously, that doesn't happen in most other areas. We don't negotiate other kinds of treaties that way. Labor management negotiations aren't done uh, in front of rank and file members. As Simon pointed out, Congress, not always the most, it, not everything happens on C-SPAN, put it that way. Um, so I don't believe that we need to have you know, C-SPAN following the um, negotiating table. Um, but I think one way to ensure greater uh, transparency in the process, a, gr a more meaningful public input is through members of Congress. Um, so just to give you one example of the kinds of issues that are outstanding, um, I mean, one thing to, just to explain the, the misinformation, all members of Congress today have access to the text. Um, that uh, was, has not been all that clear, but I think it's pretty clear now that that is the case. Now, there are some interesting questions. What about their staffs? You know, if, if their staff has security clearance, they can see even maybe top secret materials. Should they be able to see this text, given that um, you know, this text is often very complicated and a member of Congress may need some advice from, from staff? I think we think questions like that need to be discussed in this debate. Um, and as I said, con stronger consultation mechanisms. In past fast-track bills, I think it was 84, 88, there were mechanisms, for example, where the committees of jurisdiction could vote to take an agreement off the fast track if they had concerns about the contents of those um, of those agreements. And so we we think that we need to be talking about those things as well. Last point on TPA is, um, you know, what has changed since 2002? Well, one thing that's really changed is even though we had pretty substantial trade deficits in 2002 and before. In fact, I think we've had trade deficits going all the way back to 1970. So clearly not just something that's um, cyclical, but a, a real structural issue. Our trade deficits from 2002 forward have been the largest in our history, I think in the history of the world. Um, and so I think there is a real interest in Congress and um, in, um, in the public as well on doing things to strengthen US competitiveness. And that could take a variety of forms, um, and we're open to talking about the various things that could be included in it. But certainly one thing that comes to mind is our currency bill. Um, we, in 2010, passed a, a currency bill that would basically treat um, currency manipulation like what we think it is. It's essentially an export subsidy. Well, under US, existing U.S. Uh, trade remedy laws, if an export subsidy is causing material injury to a particular U.S. industry, you can impose duties, not, not what we, I always hear in the press, not slapping duties on, not punitive measures. You can impose a duty to offset that competitive advantage that they have from an export subsidy. Export subsidies, by the way, being illegal under WTO rules. Um, you know, a lot of people have pointed out that currency manipulation Either they say is tantamount to an export subsidy or is, a, is an export subsidy. Um, and so we want to you know, have U.S. law reflect that. Essentially what we are doing, not to get too into the legal weeds here, but the appellate body of the WTO has said in the past that a subsidy will be considered an export subsidy even if some of the beneficiaries of that subsidy aren't exporters. It said that in the FISC ETI uh, line uh, cases. 
we, Department of Commerce refused to apply the countervailing duty law to currency manipulation and using the same reasoning, it said, well, it's not just exporters that, that get the advantage of, of currency manipulation. You know, if you're a tourist in, the, in, in a country that manipulates its currency, you'll get the benefit too. But again, we're just asking that U.S. law follow WTO law and recognize that a subsidy can be an export subsidy even if it, um, even if it benefits more than just exporters. So that's one example of something that we think would be very meaningful in a broader bill that would help to make the United States more competitive. Obviously, there's other things as well. When you hear about competitive nowadays, there's certainly talk about how U.S. infrastructure is eroding and is costing us in terms of our competitiveness. You know, there's tax credits we could be giving to, um, to make our producers uh, more competitive. Even smaller things in the trade space, such as the miscellaneous tariff bill, which is something we've been pushing for a long time to uh, reduce or eliminate duties temporarily, um, largely on inputs that are used in the U.S. Um, production uh, of, of, of downstream goods, that's something we favor as well. Trade adjustment assistance um, and um, other things as well. Um, all right, so Dan just had to tell me that despite what I had promised at the beginning, I am out of time, but I think I'm also at the end here. So thank you again. Thanks to the panel. Thanks for those great presentations. Um, before I get to your questions, and we have about like 20 minutes or so, uh, 16 minutes, for, is, does anybody want to uh, respond to anything that was said up here? Uh, so, uh, I, I, I just a short comment. Obviously, you know, Jason raised a lot of you know, very controversial issues related to currency manipulation. I mean, we could spend all day here talking about the substance, so we won't do that. Maybe over lunch later, if, everyone, if everyone's going to the lunch. Uh, but I just, just did want to emphasize you know, and kind of highlight the complexity, and Jason referred to this, of negotiating a currency manipulation deal among all the TPP countries. Along with tobacco, that's going to be one of the issues that I just, I mean, yes, I guess anything could be done, but I look at it and say, I don't see how they're going to do that. I don't see how, you know, I can imagine that the, the U.S. is going to be able to agree on, well, here's the text we want. But to get everybody else to sign off on that, maybe, but it looks to me like it's going to, that would be a very difficult task. Jason definitely raised a lot of issues that we've, we've written about here, about the trade balance and uh, trade <coughs> deficits and whether they have a major impact on the economy, and we conclude that they don't. Uh, currency manipulation as an issue, um, you know, there's really no discernible uh, relationship between the value of the, uh, the dollar and the, and the RMB or the dollar and the Japanese yen and actually any other currency and trade flows. I mean, we live in a globalized economy. There's a lot of intermediate goods trade. Uh, it's, you know, we, we've seen the Chinese currency appreciate dramatically, yet the trade deficit with China has increased. And there's really no relationship between uh, the trade balance and jobs, because we have a lot of investment coming in. That's the flip side. We have a lot of investment coming in, and that creates uh, the jobs that are allegedly lost by having a trade deficit. But I don't want to get into this. <laughs> <laughs> I do. <laughs> Can uh, I respond to that? Sure. Okay. Um, is there any connection between currency um, movements and trade flows? Um, Paul Volcker certainly disagrees with you. He's made the point that, um, I think he said something like, in one minute, uh, currency fluctuations have more of an impact on trade than 10 years of negotiations. Um, I think, you know, Paul Volcker, pretty reputable guy. I, you know, I don't think there's any question whatsoever. I mean, you read in the press every single day, you know, that these things matter. And if, I guess my question would be, if currency values don't matter, and which affects the price of imports and exports, if that doesn't matter, then why do tariffs matter? Um, and why are we doing any of this negotiations? 
And then, you know, do trade deficits matter in terms of jobs? There's, you know, I think it, it is too simplistic to just say any trade deficit is a bad thing. Obviously, this is very complicated stuff. Some imports are of products that we don't make. Obviously, that's not going to hurt us in terms of jobs. Um, and some, some imports do uh, make us more competitive, which, again, is why we're pushing for this miscellaneous tariff bill to do that. But there are other imports that do compete against us directly. And when that competition is not fair, that costs us jobs. And it does it in a way that's not fair that costs us jobs. So, um, you know, I, and I think, I, think the, I think the tide has really turned on this. You know, I think it used to be that people would say, ah, trade deficits, that's just a sign that you have a really strong economy. Um, okay, again, we've had trade deficits since 1970. I don't think we've had a strong economy since 1970. I don't think many people feel like we have a strong economy today, even relative to other countries. So um, I, think that, I think the debate has really uh, matured over that in the last few years. Okay. Well, I'll, just, I'll refer you to the stuff that we've written, which responds to the, this question, because I want to give you guys an opportunity to uh, ask questions. Are there any questions? Uh, this gentleman right there in the middle of this middle section, uh, blonde hair. Uh, you going to bring a mic to him? Hey, pl please uh, state your, uh, your name and affiliation and get to the question. Sure. Thanks for the panel. It was uh, very informative. Uh, my name is Ben Beachy. I'm with Public Citizen. Um, and I have a question for Jason. Um, the question is uh, um, actually about, has relates to currency manipulation, um, but it's particularly about fast track. Um, a number of the concerns that were raised today um, as potential sticking points, uh, both tobacco, uh, currency manipulation, and the past labor and environment, um, and other concerns have often been stated as negotiating objectives that have been stuck into fast track so that if the administration is going to send, uh, sign the pact and send it to Congress for an expedited, uh, uh, limited debate, no amendments vote, um, Congress certainly wants to see that you know X, Y, or Z is included or not included in it, and currency manipulation is one of those things. But in the past, we've seen that those negotiating objectives have actually not been um, taken into account in the final deal that was actually signed. Um, in 1988, as I'm sure you're aware, um, the labor provisions um, were actually included as a negotiating objective, um, and yet NAFTA, as you mentioned, um, did not include labor um, as, a, as a central part of the deal. It was a side chapter. So the question is why, um, uh, how rather, how, sh how can we get around this problem? Um, if we want something like currency manipulation uh, to certainly be part of the deal, um, how can there be a, um, a, a, any, any manner of trade authority that is uh, delegated to the administration um, in a way that is binding that is, so that you don't uh, get a deal that is turned around um, and disregards your objectives? Um, that's a good question. Um, and I think it goes obviously beyond currency manipulation just to negotiating objectives more generally. One of the things that we are looking at in terms of stronger consultation mechanisms, ways to improve the negotiating process is that up until now, uh, the way TPA has worked is um, you have these negotiating objectives. And then at the end of the day, the president essentially um, certifies that progress has been made towards achieving those objectives. Um, we think one thing that should be talked about now and considered among members of Congress is maybe a group of members of Congress who um, are, you know, serve as trade advisors, maybe those members of Congress should also have a say on whether or not they think the objectives have been achieved. Um, and, you know, how to go about doing that, that could, that could take a variety of different forms. But we think that, you know, maybe having um, members of Congress play a role in that determination um, you know, would also be, would be a, a helpful step in the process. You guys want to address that question? 
Uh, I would just say it also works in, in, in reverse. You know, in 2007, when the Democrats retook Congress uh, and insisted that agreements with Peru and Colombia and Panama be reopened and eventually Korea to insert provisions that were not in the 2002 TPA legislation, it, it, it works sort of in both directions. So uh, maybe we need to find a way to respect the agreements that we strike between the executive branch and the legislative branch and move forward from there. Yeah. I don't have anything to add, except I think it's a great question. I was interested to hear how, how they deal with it. Generally speaking, putting aside trade policy, other policies, I think you know Congress should play an active role in these matters. And so, yeah, I want Congress involved, even though I might disagree sometimes with what Congress wants to do. Thought. <clears throat> uh, second row down here. Claude Barfile, uh, we're bombarding Jason here, but um, my question is, you, you said that the May 10th agreements you took, or Levin took as a starting point. Are the May 10th agreements uh, agreeable still to the Democrats in the House, or do you want to go beyond them? I know that the AFL-CIO has <coughs> talked about identifying the ILO conventions per se as opposed to the 1998 declaration. Mm -hmm. And there may be other things, but are you, is this, are you satisfied with this as a the the May tenth agreement now written into the future, mm -hmm. or do you want to go beyond it? Um, and what I meant by a starting point, when I said it there, I, I wasn't talking about those particular issues. I was talking about, you know, there are other issues on the agenda now that weren't then. So currency, SOEs, um, a variety of other issues. That's what I meant by that. You know, are we happy with the May tenth deal? Yeah, I mean, I think that we, we certainly do stand by the May 10th deal. You know, I think we need to, um, you know, consider just as we do in other contexts. You know, we didn't say anything during May 10th on currency. Now we're saying something about currency. Are we locked into what we said in 2007, you know, and, and can't raise any other issues subsequently? No, we can both, I think, um, certainly, you know, outside of the those issues, but also with respect to those issues. So, um, you know, one example would be that... Um, you know, in TPP, uh, you know, the administration is is trying to do a number of new things in terms of conservation of natural resources. Now, I would argue that actually is fully consistent with May 10th, because in the case of Peru, we had a similar issue and we had we were addressing illegal logging in that context. Um, but, you know, you need to be flexible in the TPP context. You know, we're not just dealing with illegal logging, but other kinds of um, conservation. And so, you know, I think our negotiators are working on those other issues as well. Um, so, you know, you have to be a little bit flexible and not just sort of develop a boilerplate approach. But um, for the most part, I mean, what I would say is, yes, we stand by the May 10th agreement. Uh, yeah, back there in the, uh, under the uh, camera. Gary. Uh, the unavoidable follow-up, do House Republicans still like the May 10 agreement? And do Senate Republicans, who may be a different group, it appears, like the May 10 agreement? I'm not sure if I want to speak for them. <laughs> oh, okay, good. <laughs> I have no insights on that. I was looking to Jason to see what he had to offer. Yeah, I, I saw Angela Ellard speak the other day, but I didn't ask her that question. So Maybe I can try to do it diplomatically. I'll, I'll, I'll say this. I, I think, and you kind of alluded to this, Gary, that, um, you know, the May 10th agreement, the people who were, I mean, I think all members of Congress in some sense were involved in it, but the, but the, the ones who were most involved were, you know, 
the chair and ranking member of Ways and Means and Senate Finance. And then, you know, at least in our case, it's a little bit more complicated than that because our trade subcommittee works very closely with, um, with the full committee chair or ranking member. But, um, you know, uh, the, you know, Camp, I think, was involved in that process, even though he wasn't at the time the, uh, the ranking member. Um, I, I think that, you know, Senator Hatch may feel like he was a little bit less involved or maybe put it differently. Senator Hatch voted against uh, at least the Peru FTA, which came right out of May 10th um, because he had some concerns, I think, in particular on IPR access to medicine. So um, he may take a different view. I mean, it, it, on the issue of, say, currency manipulation, is there more daylight between Republicans in Congress and Democrats in Congress or between Democrats in Congress and the White House? In terms of getting this into this agreement, yeah, it's not it's not that simple. I don't think. I mean, I, you know, so our um, you know the currency bill that we passed, it, it was very strong majorities of both Republicans and Democrats. Um, this letter that I mentioned had lots of Republicans on it, probably more Democrats, but lots of Republicans on it. You know, as I said, Portman, Grassley, Roberts, those are just the three Senate Finance Republicans I can think of that are uh, supposed to be signing this this. Um, this currency letter. Um, and then there's folks in the administration that I think agree with us and there's folks who disagree. So it's, you know, it's a little bit more complicated than that. I mean, what I would say is last Congress we had, I can't remember how many co-sponsors on our currency bill. I think it was like 280, I want to say some huge number. Um, and yet the bill didn't come up. I think, I think it's pretty clear that the house Republican leadership didn't want to bring the bill up, but the house Republican rank and file, yeah, apparently did, given that they co-sponsored the bill. Any questions for this side of the, <laughs> the panel? Uh, yeah, right here. Uh, in the middle, we got fourth row. Kenyon Bosler from the Carnegie Endowment. I'm wondering where things stand with regard to the rules of origin and what are the implications, particularly if they're going to be national or cumulative rules of origin, and what are the implications of that for the East Asian integrated trade architecture? I, I don't have any great insights on that. I don't know if you know anything, Meredith. Um, I don't know where it's at in the first instance, but... Rules of origin is clearly an important issue. So, for example, one thing that's been um, leaked, I suppose, is that the U.S. has been saying that it's going to apply a yarn-forward rule on textiles. For Vietnam, that's a big problem because Vietnam uses yarn from China, and that would mean that Vietnamese textiles wouldn't be products of Vietnam and wouldn't be entitled to the, uh, the FTA rate. And that's disastrous for Vietnam. It's one of the main reasons they want to participate in this FTA. Um, similarly, there are issues about rules of origin for autos. Depending on how you define it, autos coming out of Mexico either are products of the TPP or aren't. So it's certainly, um, it's certainly a, a live issue. I'm not sure how, it, uh, how it's playing out, but, but clearly there are objections to some of the proposals that have been floated. Uh, right there. Hi, I'm Brian Cotto from Mitsubishi. Uh, you mentioned a, a bit about the prospects of Korea joining the uh, TPP. Uh, this is for Ms. Lewis. Um, I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on what some of the incentives for and against might be, and if they do join, what would be the effects on the overall 
process. Thank you. Sure. Well, in the first instance, I think that from what I've read, Korea's view is there's not, prior to Japan's joining, there weren't necessarily major economic gains that would come out of it because, of course, Korea already has an FTA with the U.S., has an FTA with ASEAN, has an FTA with a lot of the participants. Um, I think, however, that with Japan coming in, from Korea's perspective, Japan might obtain certain um, concessions that Korea wouldn't be receiving, and Korea would want to uh, be a beneficiary of, of those as well. So I think that Japan coming in changes the calculus for Korea to some degree. My understanding is that because of the political situation um, with North Korea and otherwise, Korea's priority right now is negotiating an FTA with China. So I don't think that Korea is, is rushing to get in right now. They clearly aren't. But I do think that Japan coming in makes it much more attractive for Korea to come in. Uh, this guy right here. Uh, come down, yeah, two more rows. Hello, this is Adam V. Sudi from Politico. I had a question for Jason. What What is sort of the status of the the gang of four negotiations on the TPA bill? Is that process broken down or is there sort of a break going on? What's, what's sort of the status, uh, as much as you can say, of that? Um, no, I mean, there, I wouldn't say that there's a break. Um, you know, we've been, we've been talking going back to, I can't remember when we started talking, maybe back to April about, um, the particulars here. You know, I think, um, you know, that process still has to play itself out a little bit more, but, um, yeah, there's no, there's no real break in the discussions, not gang of four, big four is what we are. I think all this, all the gangs seem to be all Senate only. <laughs> this is this is the bicameral, bipartisan. That's right. That's approach. right. right. Yeah. I know there are a lot more questions out there. I hope you can stick around for lunch. Uh, these guys will be here to to, to chat with you. Uh, I apologize that we couldn't get to them all. Let me just say one thing that we didn't really talk about was the impact of the TPP, which is such a big bilateral, and the TTIP on the multilateral system. And if you want to hear more about that, we're having an event here on October second at eleven. At 11:30, uh, it's on the website. It's called uh, "The Future of the, the WTO and the Uncertain Future of Multilateralism," where we'll talk about the impact of these agreements on that system. Uh, I'd like to really thank the panel for their participation and for for your attention. And uh, one more round of applause, and we can go upstairs for lunch. Thank you.